this is Madeline Smith and you are listening to Actually Interesting History. We make history fun, accessible, and interesting by sharing the human story behind the dates we learned about in history class. As Rudyard Kipling said, if history was taught in the form of stories, it would never be forgotten. Now on with the show. Hello friends and welcome back to season two of Actually Interesting History. The season thing is kind of arbitrary, but I did take a little bit of a break and it is a new year, so we're just going to roll with it. Season two. Yay. <laughs> and uh, it is really hard to express um, enthusiasm audibly without uh, kind of embarrassing yourself. So maybe that's something I'll, uh, <laughs> I'll work to improve on this season. We'll see. Uh, but anyways, I am super excited to share with you guys what we will what we will be covering first and that is Alexander the Great. Don't know who he is? Well, he just conquered, I don't know, most of the western world by the time he reached 33. But of course, we will be starting with some background. And after our coverage of Alexander the Great, we will be moving into a personal historical favorite of mine, Cleopatra, the last pharaoh of Egypt. And you may be wondering, why are these two things happening together? How are they related? Well, after Alexander conquered much of the known Western world, his kingdom was split amongst his generals and loyal followers, and one of these families took over Egypt. And that, my friends, was the Ptolemies, the family of Cleopatra. That's right, Alexander was Macedonian and Cleopatra was as well. So after Alexander's kingdom was split up, what happened was a time known as the Hellenistic Age, when Greek culture was spread throughout the Western world. And this age came to an end, some people say around the death um, of another historical person, a king who ruled Macedonia, but really the last Hellenistic uh, empire kingdom to fall was Egypt to Rome in 33 BC, with the death of Cleopatra. So in a lot of ways, Alexander is the beginning of this Hellenistic book, age, and then Cleopatra is the end of this Hellenistic age. So I thought that telling their stories side by side would be extremely interesting. So that is what we are going to do. Woo, but I'm, uh, again, I'm getting very ahead of myself. So let's go back and start at the very beginning. A very good place to start and if you get my song of music reference in that so right off the top I have three uh, disclaimers I want to add in first disclaimer I do not speak Greek so please know that I am trying my best with pronunciations I asked friends I listened to videos over and over again but speaking again has never really been a strong suit of mine so if there's a word that I don't think I'm even close to going to be able to get right in the moment, I'm just going to spell it for you and do my best. Just know, I really am trying. I'm trying so, so hard. It's so much easier to just write it, but I wanted a podcast, so <laughs> here we are. All right, disclaimer number two. We are going to be talking about the ancient world, and we're going to be talking about war. So there are some concepts I'm going to be talking about that may not be suited for children. I never really swear, not really my thing. I went to Catholic school. But keep in mind, just 
give it a listen first. Make sure you're okay with the concepts before you share with young ones. And then disclaimer three. I actually recorded this episode already. I had it all done. It was 50 minutes worth of audio. And I went to edit it and I realized that something was wrong with my microphone. I have no idea what, but my voice wasn't picked up at all. So <laughs> this is my second try recording this episode. And you know what? I could probably use the practice. I, I'm glad that I struggled through the pronunciation of all the words the first time. Maybe it will be better this time around. I have no proof since I can't hear the original audio, but you know what? We're going with it. I think practice is good for everyone, and um, we're going to view this as a positive thing. And this recording is going to knock the socks off the first recording because positive attitude, man. Yes. All right. Disclaimer's over. Alexander time. Yay again! Oh, jeez. Alexander the Great lived around 300 BC and became one of the most successful Western military leaders of all time. He was the marker that all the great rulers that came after him measured themselves against, but none really could claim to truly be his equal. Alexander was Macedonian, a kingdom in northern Greece. His father conquered the Greek mainland, and Alexander went on to conquer Persia, Egypt, and parts of Asia, all the way up to the Indus River Valley. But before we get into his story, I want to talk what was going on. I want to talk about what was going on in Alexander's world. What did it mean to be Greek? What did it mean to be Macedonian? Um, what even is a Macedonian? What was Persia? We will be answering all of that and more in today's episode, starting with my old friends, the classical Greeks. We covered some of the following information in my episode, Who Put the Glad in Gladiator? Your Guide to Ancient Greece, Season 1, Episode 8. So you can either go back and listen to that if you'd like some more information, or I will do a brief recap of that right now. So being Greek in the ancient world did not mean living in the country, which is now modern day Greece, the way that we think of it. Instead, of living in one geographical area, the ancient Greeks shared a language, gods, food, amongst other things that we now today would refer to as culture. The Greek city-states were all across the Mediterranean, not again in today what we would consider Greece. It included Spain, Northern Africa, Sicily, Italy, Asia Minor, and the Aegean Islands. People living in these places would identify more with the city-state that they lived in and not so much identify themselves as being one collective Greek people. And just so you know, a city-state was an organized, I mean, city, um, more of a collective center. So it was a grouping of people with a surrounding countryside. So it was more of an urban area surrounded by a countryside and they had their own um, government systems that were unique to them. So for example, Athens was a democracy, Sparta was more of a socialized military type situation. Um, but again, they did share some common cultural practices. They shared the same language. And so that united them as a people, even though they felt much more of a close identity with the city state that they lived in. So, for example, 
if you were talking to someone, they would call themselves Athenians, not Greeks. The same way that if I'm talking to someone and they're like, hey, like, where are you from? If I don't know, like, where they're from, I might say Ohio at first and then be like, oh, okay, like, I'm familiar with Ohio, like, what city? And then you'd be like, oh, okay, awesome, I'm from Columbus. It's what you identify with more. And again, it that's not the perfect example because I don't ever describe myself as a Colombian, <laughs> but that type of thing, if that makes sense. So the earliest Greek civilization was the Minoans in Creek around 2800 BC. The Greek civilization continued until the defeat of the Macedonian king Perseus by the Romans in 168 BC. And again, this was the date that I pointed to earlier when I was talking about when some people call the end of the Hellenistic age, but Again, I go with Cleopatra, who was the ruler of the last real, like, Hellenistic kingdom that fell to the Romans. Now, however, the things that we most associate with the ancient Greeks, you know, Homer, the Persian Wars, Socrates, Alexander the Great, all of this stuff happened between 900 and 300 BC. And then this big period of time can be further broken up into early Greece, 900 BC to 490 BC, the classical period, 490 to 350 BC, and then just hitting the Hellenistic period, which is 350 BC to um, 150 BC again, or further up, depending on who you talk to. There's all kinds of different dating systems, and it's all kind of made up, so great. Uh, we also can gain a deeper understanding of what these dates mean by looking at the life of Alexander and the rise of Macedonia. Macedonia was a historic region that spans parts of northern Greece and the Balkan Peninsula. When we think of Greek city-states we are taught about in school, like the ones I mentioned before like Athens, Sparta, etc., these were located on the southern part of the Greek peninsula. The Ionian Sea was to the west and the Aegean Sea was to the east. Located to the north of these traditional Greek city-states, the ancient kingdom of Macedonia, sometimes called Macedon, was a crossroads between the Mediterranean and Balkan civilizations. The Macedonians were of Greek origin, but they spoke a rougher version of Greek, and to kind of understand this, think about the way that English is spoken across the world. So for example, the English that they speak in Scotland <laughs> <laughs> is a little bit different than the American English that I'm speaking right now, for example. And I know that we technically are speaking the same language, but sometimes it's very hard to understand people from a different region than you. And this is not a crack at the Scottish. I am well aware that people do not like American English. To quote Rex Harrison in one of my favorite musicals, there are even some places where English completely disappears. In America, they haven't spoken it in years. And that, my friends, was a quotation from the Broadway musical, My Fair Lady. I wish there was a little bit of gentle applause, but I've given up ever adding <laughs> any um, audio effects, so just imagine it in your mind. Moving on. So, the Macedonian people began as more of a tribal society with lots of infighting. Because of this, the geographic ruggedness of the region as well, a lot of the early contact between the Macedonians and the other Greek city-states 
was limited to trade. And the Greek countryside, so I've, I've mostly spent my time in southern Greece, but even that, it's extremely hilly. There are a lot of really um, <laughs> sharp, uh, sharp plants, for sure, but then it's also really rugged and rocky, and it does make um, moving between the city-states not easy especially if there's not already a road in place, you're basically just climbing up and down really steep rocky hills. It would be really hard to move things from place to place. So it makes sense. You're pretty, geolo you're pretty geographically isolated from the places that are around you. The ruling family of Macedonia was referred to as the Argead dynasty or the Temenids, and I'll explain what that word means soon, and was founded in around 700 BC. The kingship Macedonia was a little bit of little bit different than the absolute monarchies we tend to think of when we think of, I don't know, like medieval Europe, you know, like Elizabeth I. Although I guess she technically reigned after the Magna Carta was signed, so not even her really. But you know, it's not like what the king says is law. There are some checks on his power. So in Macedonia, the kings had to follow Macedonian law. Decisions were also debated within a council of tribal leaders. The kingship was also not necessarily hereditary. When a king died, the tribal leaders chose his, successful, chose his successor, though they did often just end up picking the son of the last king, and also they believed that their ruling family was descended from Hercules slash Heracles, which again, we will get to in a second. So from about 700 BC, the founding of of Macedonia and well the founding at least of this ruling family of Macedonia and this date is coming to us from Herodotus. Uh, the person who established this family was Peridikes the first and he led his people who called themselves the Macedonians eastward from their home on the Halimican River. And if you want to look this up on a modern day map, um, the spelling of that word, the spelling of the modern day word is L, I'm sorry, A-L-I-A-K-M-O-N. And the ancient spelling is H-A-L-I-A-C-M-O-N. So that actually, it's not too far off if you're looking at the words next to each other. And there is no uh, direct uh, translations from Greek since we have a different alphabet. So it makes all these pronunciations even more delightful. Mm -hmm. So again, I looked this up on a map and it's basically right in the middle, uh, in the top of the Greek, uh, Greek Peninsula. And they founded the Ege city near the Bay of the Aegean Sea. And this became their capital, which is west of modern day Thessaloniki, which is the second largest city in Greece. For the next few hundred years, the kings of Macedonia steadily gained more lands to the east, conquering, conquering the Thracian tribes living in this area. Alexander I, not our Alexander, but one of his ancestors, who reigned from 492 to 450 BC, gained land to the Strymon River, which means that they had conquered all the way to the east of the land that the modern-day city of Thessaloniki is on, and if you want to look up that river, the spelling is S-T-R-Y-M-O-N, so you can get a better idea of where this is on the map. Now, this Alexander also went by the nickname the Philhellene, 
basically indicating his efforts to win Greek sympathies because the Greeks refer to themselves as Hellene or Helena. Um, modern day Greece is actually called Hella. So that that's where that word comes from. And basically what this guy did is he spread the legend that his family, the Argead dynasty, had come from the Temenids of Argos and thus he was able to obtain admission to the Olympic Games because they were recognized as a part of Greek society. The reason he wanted to spread this rumor that his family were descendants from this group of people is because the Temenids had come from Temenus, who was supposedly the great-great-grandson of Hercules slash Heracles. Now this will come up later as Alexander the Great's accomplishments are often regarded as godlike. There was a lot of talk during his day, like, wait, is this guy a god? <laughs> Which we'll get into later. And also if you're wondering why I'm saying Hercules slash Heracles, they are the Greek and Roman equivalents of the same uh, demigod. And if you want to know more on that, go back to my uh, series on Hercules. It's one of the favorite things that I've done so far, and I explain all of that stuff and more in those episodes. So go back, watch, spend some more time with me. I'd appreciate it. Watch, listen. Oh my gosh. Did I mention that this is the second time I'm recording this? Okay. Ige, <laughs> the capital city of ancient Macedonia, was discovered by the modern-day city of Virginia in northern Greece. The monumental palace that was uncovered there is considered one of the biggest, most lavish buildings which we have found from ancient Greece, complete with mosaics and elaborate stucco work that you can still see today. The tholos, which some scholars say was the throne room, had decorations depicting the family's connection to the Temenids, which I think is also pretty cool because it's they're trying to say like, hey look, we're important we're related to Heracles, like, fear us, we're awesome. It's kind of like really cementing and showing people why they are in power, which I think is super cool. The site actually contains more than 500 burial mounds dating from the 11th to 2nd century BC as well. And in 1977, researchers discovered the tomb of four Macedonian kings, including Philip II, Alexander the Great's father, under a burial mound called the Great to, I didn't look up this word, tumulus, T-U-M-U-L-U-S. Um, scientists actually matched a massive hole in one of the leg bones uncovered there to a crippling wound that Philip had actually suffered early on in his military career, which, as a bioarchaeologist, I just think that that is so, is so incredibly cool. Um, when, so, just because of the nature of bioarchaeology, you're really only working with bones. So I always thought it was so awesome when I like found someone's bones and they had had like a broken leg or a broken like hand, anything. Basically anything that was broken that you could see it starting to heal because that gave you more of an idea of what that person's life was like or if they had um, some type of breakage on their bones that didn't have any healing because then you could... Um, relate it more directly to the time of that person's death. So that's really, really cool. I'm sorry, I'm such a huge bioarchaeology nerd. I love this stuff. But yeah, that's awesome. You <laughs> you can see his leg wounds. So, woo, 
And fun fact, you can actually go and visit the tomb today and there is a museum there. So if you have 12 euro, only six if you're in the off season, nice, uh, and some time on your hands, I would definitely go and look at it because I was looking at pictures and the museum seems pretty nice and the site is really pretty. So definitely do that if you have some time. Um, there is a modern day country known as the Republic of Macedonia that was founded in 1991. And before declaring independence, the area was controlled by Yugoslavia. There is actually a bit of a to-do about which country, Macedonia or Greece, that can claim Alexander. Many Greeks don't like the use of the name Macedonia by the modern country, as the northern region of Greece is also called Macedonia, and the Greek people basically believe that this amounts as a claim to that region by that country. And these people also point to the fact that the people of the Republic of Macedonia are actually Slavic in ancestry, ethnicity, sorry. And I actually haven't looked into the um, migration patterns or um, geologic, ge uh, ge genealogical, um, or, oh my gosh, why is this, why are these words so hard? I haven't looked very much into these claims yet, and I am going to be. Um, which, why I'm doing that later <laughs> will become clear in a second, but as a result to these claims, um, some international organizations, including the European Union and NATO, prefer to refer to this country as the former Yugoslav Republic of Macedonia. And the reason that I didn't do a ton of research into these claims is because I actually have some Macedonian friends. So I reached out to them because I was covering Alexander and I was like, hey, like, what are your thoughts on this? And the information that I got from above, like some of, I looked all over the place and even in, on places like history.com, like run by the History Channel, it seemed to be very one-sided and we don't like that. So actually one of my Macedonian friends actually agreed to come on. So we are going to talk about these claims. We're gonna talk about the genetic research. We're gonna talk about ethnicity and all of that about the country of Macedonia from the time of the ancients all the way up to the modern day country. And we will be doing that in a episode that will come out next. I'm so excited. And then the episode after that is when we will really get into the story of Alexander. So woo, that's so exciting. I'm so excited to sh share more with you guys about it. And yeah, that'll be coming next. So if Alexander is the protagonist of our story, then the main antagonist would have to be the Persian Empire and their emperor at the time of Alexander's life, Darius. Now you may be wondering, what is the Persian Empire? And you also may be wondering, Maddie, why do you ask yourself so many questions? Well, try talking to yourself for an hour and <laughs> you'll start asking yourself questions too. Moving on, so the Persian Empire began in the 6th century BC with a military campaign led by the Persian king Cyrus the Great. Now, at Persia's height under Darius the Great, who came after Cyrus, the Persian Empire actually stretched from Europe's Balkan Peninsula, uh, which is in parts what is present-day Bulgaria, Romania, and the Ukraine, all the way to the Indus River Valley in northwestern India and south to Egypt, covering nearly 3 million square miles. So when I hear numbers like 3 million square miles, it kind of just rolls right over my head because I'm like, 
but I don't know, numbers, whatever, just kind of rolls right over. But I actually took the time to think like, huh, how much land is 3 million square miles? So I did some digging and bear with me here for a second because we're, we're going to start big and then we're going to work away smaller. So on the surface of the earth, there are 196.9 million square miles. So you were not, so that's just entire surface area of the earth but only 29% of that surface area is actually land. Because remember, we're mostly oceans and the Earth is actually sometimes referred to as the blue planet, which when I think of blue, I normally think of Neptune, but whatever, ask a person that studies astronomy. That's, I didn't just make that up, that's true. So <laughs> blue planet, nickname for the Earth. And again, only about f a little bit more than 57, mil 57 million square miles on the surface of the earth is land. So if you do the math, at the height of the Persian Empire, they ruled over roughly 5% of the earth's surface area. And what makes this even more impressive is when you think about the fact that they did this before planes, before trains, before automobiles, like it's incredible that they were able to manage this much land. And to also put this in perspective for you, the largest country today by million square miles, so this isn't population, this is purely landmass, is Russia with 6.6 .6 million square miles. Canada and the United States have roughly 3.8 million square miles. China, the fourth largest country, has 3.7. Brazil has 3.3. Then Australia, the sixth largest country, has 2.9 million square miles. So at the height of the Persian Empire, they ruled over more square miles of land than the entire continent slash country of Australia. Yeah, it, it's nuts that they were able to, to manage this much land. And so how did they do that? Well, Cyrus the Great, who again, not Darius the Great, Cyrus the Great, the one who came first, divided Persia into 20 provinces or Sterapis, which each paid a fixed rate to the central government of Persia. So then when Darius ruled, he expanded this number to 36. So each, each strapi was run by essentially appointed strap um, or serap um, or governor often related to Darius. So to prevent any one of these people from building too much of a power base, Darius also appointed a separate military commander that was answerable only to him. Which, honestly, the ancient Romans could have learned something from this, because what they would do is they would send someone to govern a legion out somewhere, maybe in Germania, and then that person would be like, hmm, I have this legion. Um, I think I'm going to use it to try to take over the imperial throne. And then a uh, civil war would ensue in Rome, and there was all kinds of bloodshed and stuff. So they, uh, Darius was being super smart here, and uh, the Romans could have learned a thing or two from him, but that's a story for another day. So also what Darius did, which was super smart, is he sent in imperial spies known as the King's Ears to keep tabs on both of these leaders and report back to Darius through the use of a postal service. Now, this postal service was really incredible, and it's often referred to as the first and I put in quotations, modern postal system, 
And the way that it worked is um, there was a series of stations set up throughout the land. And each man would ride to the next station where a fresh horse would be waiting for them. And then when that man reached the end of his shift, a fresh man would also be waiting, keeping the mail constantly moving towards his destination, which was revolutionary at the time. Because one of the biggest barriers that these people were dealing with was the fact that it took so long for information to travel from place to place. And so because of this, it really meant that Persia operated in a way that was much more advanced than the places around them. Now, the Persian Empire first came into contact with the Greeks when they began to conquer Greek cities to consolidate their trade routes in what we would now refer to as the Balkan Peninsula. What resulted was a period known as the Persian Wars. The time period known as the Persian Wars was the birth of the Marathon, the events that inspired the movie 300, and a lot of other things that we now associate with the ancient Greeks. Ultimately, the Greek city-states were able to work together and unite against the forces of the Persian Empire, ultimately being able to maintain their autonomy. The Persian Empire entered a period of decline after the failed invasion of Greece by Xerxes I in 480 BC. He was pretty humiliated by the whole thing and ultimately returned to his palace. And this is specifically what inspired the events of the movie 300. Which, by the way, this is a super off-topic thing, but Gerard Butler is the best. I So the movie 300 is like a little bit nuts and right on like my threshold <laughs> of what I can handle. But if you have a chance, pause what you're listening to right now, come back to me in a moment, Go and listen to Gerard Butler sing the music of the night in the Phantom of the Opera. It is glorious, and he'll caress you as the nighttime fills you with splendor. Um, I digress. So anyways, uh, <laughs> uh, after this uh, period of decline, nothing super interesting happens until 401 BC. Now at this time, Cyrus the Younger, the Syrop of Lydia, and Cappadocia staged a coup against his brother Artaxerxes II, who ruled Persia from 404 to 358 BC. Now, Cyrus attacked his brother with 10,000 Greek mercenaries, but ultimately the coup failed and he was unable to take power. Now, however, the Greek mercenaries he used returned home and the information they brought back was ultimately what paved the way for Alexander to fight against the Persians later. So, um, this is a hint for anybody who's planning a coup anytime soon. Um, if you potentially want to run a nation one day, don't use mercenaries from a place that you fight on a pretty, pretty regular basis. That would have been like, I don't know, if during the height of the space race, we invited some Russian astronauts for a show and tell day at NASA just doesn't really make a lot of sense. Anyways, so by the time of Alexander, the king of Persia very loosely ruled the territories that made up the Persian Empire, with the local Sterapis operating with a lot of autonomy in their territories, and they didn't really care for the king very much at this point at all. Um, they really did carve out their own little islands of power, and inflation, which had begun because of the taxes that kept rising, was really starting to decrease the power of the Persian Empire. During Alexander's campaign, the Persian king was Darius III, 
but we will cover him more later. He is quite a character, but more, more on him to come. Now that we've met our adversary, let's head back to Macedonia and let's meet Dad, shall we? Excellent. So, as I mentioned, the ruling family of Macedonia had been around since about 700 BC, according to Herodotus, who, fair enough, we'll take his date, and they had steadily been gaining power. Over the centuries, the ruling family of Macedonia also tried to increase their social standing among the other Greek city-states. First, they claimed to be descendants from Hercules-Heracles through one of his numerous offspring. Uh, you can check out my series on uh, the mythology of Hercules-Heracles if you want to know more about him. Again, highly recommend it. I think I've plugged it twice already, but I really like it, so <laughs> go back and listen. So then, around 392 BC, Alexander's grandfather takes control of the Macedonian throne after a brief period of anarchy following the assassination of the previous ruler. Now, Alexander's grandfather, I'm just going to spell his name because I'm not going to torture you with me trying to pronounce it, just in case there is anybody who actually speaks Greek listening to this. And if there is, I am so sorry. <laughs> but that name is A-M-Y-N-T-A-S the third. Very good. So, Grandpa successfully brought unity to Macedonia. After his death in about 369 sorry, BC, he left three lawful sons. Now, his first two sons actually only ruled pretty briefly, and they died, um, they died pretty early. So then in 359 BC, the third son, Philip II, aka Dad, assumed control in the name of one of his brother's infant heirs. And he restored order because, you know, there's an infant, so everyone's like, ooh, ooh, my turn, my turn, I want to be king, I want to be king. And Philip is like, nah, I'm going to be king. And uh, he won, so then he was king. And I looked in, I was like, well, what happened to the infant then after Philip declared himself king? And um, the infant in question never tried to take back rule from Philip, even though he had claimed rule in the name of said infant. And uh, that was pretty smart, because if the infant in question would have tried to take the throne back, uh, he would have been super dead. But then, um, when Alexander became king, um, after Dad Philip died, uh, infant, who is no longer an infant, was put to death anyways, so. I mean, he could have lived a shorter life. That, um, wow, that was very callous of me. Madeline. I, I... I'm gonna I'm gonna chalk that one up to this is the second time I've recorded this so moving on so when Philip came to power he was only 24 years old however Philip was super good at war and quickly established quite the reputation for himself now in order to understand why Philip was so super good at war we're going to have to spend a little bit of time talking about the traditional Greek fighting style, and then we'll talk about the improvements that Philip made to it. Up until this point, the traditional Greek fighting style was known as the hoplite phalanx. I'm going to take some time to explain the traditional Greek fighting style, and then we will go over 
the things that Philip did to improve on it. So, hoplites were standard infantrymen who fought in a formation. They wore armor that covered them like basically a sleeveless t-shirt and that um, it was made out of bronze and the amount of bronze depended on how much money you had. So if you were poor, you wouldn't have very much bronze or maybe even no bronze at all and you would use layers of canvas and linen. And I know that that sounds pretty ridiculous, but the Mythbusters actually did an episode where they tested a style of armor that was very similar to this, that was made up of layers of canvas and linen that were used in a Chinese version of armor, and it was actually really effective and a lot lighter, so in some ways it was better than traditional, uh, traditional bronze armor, so... In case you were imagining like someone running out with a piece of paper on their chest and like, I really hope this stops the swords. <laughs> like, it wasn't nearly that bad. It actually like, it was okay. It wasn't it wasn't ideal, but it was okay just <laughs> to get that version of it out of your heads. And again, so this was a sleeveless T-shirt looking thing, and the name of it is I'm just gonna spell it for you: C U I R A S S. Nice. All right, and then this left their arms, again, because, you know, t-shirt, sleeveless t-shirt, for easy movement. And no farmer's tan lines, which we like. They also wore greaves made of bronze that fit around the bottom half of their legs with just regular sandals on their feet. You know, their everyday shoe wear. Sandals, they're fine. They also also wore helmets, um... The most common of these was called the Corinthian helmet, which is pretty much what I think everyone thinks of when they think of like your standard Greek helmet. It had an opening with at the front with a long strip that acted as a nose guard. And then at the top, it would have a crest made out of horsehair sometimes for fashion, which, you know, fabulous. And again, when you think of this, I definitely think is like your typical Greek helmet you know, the piece of bronze coming down around the nose that was kind of pointy, and then fabulous horsehair crest. And whenever I think of this in my head, I always think of it as red. I don't know why specifically I've decided that it's that color, but that's what we're going to go with. So, you know, fashion. And then each hoplite would have a shield known as a hoplon, which is where they got their name from. Nice. And the shields were round about three feet wide and made of wood and bronze and would be about 17 pounds, give or take, which I know doesn't sound like a lot when you just say 17 pounds, but if you're holding it up for hours walking across, you know, the Greek countryside or the desert or wherever the else, else your king told you to go, it would get pretty heavy. So big, big, uh, <laughs> armor shield. Thing. stuff warfare okay so from there each hoplite warrior would have a weapon now there were two main ones either a spear that was three meters long or 10 feet that was tipped with iron at both ends so pointy both i don't know why i just said that but i'm not going to uh re-record this section so we're just gonna move on and uh the other option other than a 10 foot long spear again, iron and pointy at both ends, was a sword. But this sword was pretty small. It was only about 60 centimeters long and, or like 23 inches. 
and these were made out of iron with a bronze handle. Now, the way these hoplite warriors were organized was known as a phalanx. And basically, the strength of the hoplite formation came from this shield. So men would line up in squares, often um, nine feet, nine feet, nine men across, and then eight or nine or eight. Well, okay. So it could go anywhere from like eight to 12 men, and it would be, uh, there would be eight to 12 men across, and then it would be eight or 12 men deep. So it's just a big square of people. And each man would hold their shield up on the same side with their spears in the other hand. And these formations were extremely closely tight packed together. So each man would only take up roughly about like three feet. So the tightness of their formation meant that the shield from the person on your right covered you on your right side. So during battle, the person in the front of you, um, if that person fell, you pushed forward and filled their space. So basically, the goal of ancient warfare at this time in this place was to break the enemy line of the people in front of you. So you'd have these two lines of people with their shields pushing up against each other, trying to poke the person across the way dead. And then if that person fell, someone would come up, fill the line. And basically the, the thought was if you could break the line in front of you, their formation would be messed up. They would be a lot easier to kill. And then in that way, you would win the battle. And I think there's there's some pretty good representations of this. If you just Google like hoplite warfare, I'm sure you'll get some good YouTube videos and stuff. And I actually think the movie Alexander with Colin Fifth Firth, no Colin Farrell. Oh my gosh, Colin Farrell um, has a pretty good representation of what this looked like. Though I haven't watched it recently, and I will because I will comment on the historical accuracy of this at the very end of our coverage of Alexander. But I, I'm pretty sure, based on what I recall, they actually do the war pretty well in that movie. And now I'm terrified that since I haven't rewatched it, it's actually going to be terrible. <laughs> and I'll, um, I'll give you guys some bad advice. But if that's the case, I will correct myself later. I promise. So then, if this was traditional Greek warfare... What did Philip do to improve upon it? While Philip did have infantry phalanx formations, um, his army actually depended much heavier on cavalry, people in horseback. Philip would use his cavalry offensively to break the enemy lines. So, you know, we talked about how it's the two lines pressing up against each other, you know, people on, on foot and then people on foot pushing against each other, trying to poke at each other with their spears and swords. Well, Philip was like, do you want to know what I think would work better at breaking the line than just more people? What if we threw some horses in? And honestly, revolutionary. Nice job, Philip. <laughs> that, that was really smart. I don't know why no one thought of it before he did. So that was very helpful. And then the hoplite members of Philip's army actually did not use the traditional three meter spear, remember roughly 10 feet. They used another spear, which was 4.5 meters or 15 feet long as a thrusting spear. So this made getting anywhere close to their line to break it really, really hard. You know, because if you tried, you were gonna get pricked by the pointy end of a very sharp, very long spear not where I want to be. So they also had different formations that they were 
very, very good at getting into. Not your standard square of 8 to 12 people by 8 to 12 people. No, 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 no. That wasn't good enough for Philip. Philip was like, I'm going to drill you guys until you can do this in the middle of a battle with war elephants coming at you and people falling down and blood and sweat and death. And if I call out the name of a formation, then my goodness, I don't care what's going on around you. You are going to get in that formation. And um, that's exactly what he did. So he had these people drilled so well that in the chaos of what I just described, they were able to quick, incredibly quickly make these formations in the middle of a battle, which is just, it shows a level of discipline that I don't really know anyone else they were fighting against even close to have had. So some of the formations include a square with no one in the middle. So this was men facing out with shields on all sides. So it's a square, everyone's facing outside the square. And so this would be good, for example, if you were being surrounded or something. You could protect your back by making that square formation. The next was an oblique, which basically was a slanty line. And so what this did is this pushed all the pressure on one point of the enemy line. I'm actually like making the shapes <laughs> with my arms so I can like try to explain it to you. <laughs> um, so if you like, never mind. Okay, so pointy line, you have the oblique. So all the pressure is being put on at one point on the enemy line. And so the thought is here, if you concentrate all your pressure into a smaller area, then what that means is that spot in the line is more likely to break instead of just having everybody completely up on each other pushing and then the next one was a wedge so like a v of canadian geese on the ground only with 15 feet long spears pushing again it's the same type of thing where they're putting all the pressure into one point really trying to break apart that enemy line or a crescent a crescent of death okay i'm done so there were also this special um, group of troops and hypopasts. Oh goodness. I. <laughs> okay, so H Y P A S P I S T S. Okay, so these special troops, these guys were nuts. So <laughs> if you need someone to climb up a cliff and attack a city in the middle of the night, call these guys. They loved doing crazy stuff. The crazier, the better. They were all about it. They were like this special forces unit, except for I'm not actually sure what special forces do, but it sounded right, so we're going to go with it. And one book I read described the things that like they like to do as ludicrously dangerous tasks. So that's a lot of words for some dry historical writing. So that's must have been pretty ludicrous. Um, they were also very lightly armored, so they were very mobile. So now that we've established why the Macedonian fighting force was so successful, what did Philip do with them? Well, to get the answer to this question, you are actually going to have to tune in to not next week, because again, we're going to be covering um, the history of Macedonia with a special guest, which not next show, not next week which I'm so excited about. But next time we will pick back up with the life of Philip II, Alexander's dead, 
Alexander's dad, and then we will get into our coverage of the life of Alexander the Great. Thank you guys so much for listening. I also wanted to take this time to tell you thank you so much to everyone who has tuned in, who has listened to an episode, who has supported me in any type of way. I'm so excited to be able to continue to do this. It makes me very happy, and I'm so excited to share my love of history with you guys and continue to do that. So thank you so much for the opportunity, and thank you for listening, and I'm so excited for what this season has in store. Bye!